0: Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 podcast. Here we go.
1: Hello. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast. If you're new, welcome. Hi, everyone. It's Lindsay and Krista. We are here in the studio isolating together, having a good time, keeping things rolling, keeping things rolling. We got (laughs) to, We got to
0: keep it happening for you. And if you've been following on Instagram, you can see all the lives we've been doing, just providing you as much inspiring, motivational content as we can.
1: Yeah. And we've been hearing from so many of you that even just the real conversations like on the lives, like you and I did a live the other day, have been helpful. So I didn't I, see any comment.
0: I was pissed. My oh, my yeah. thing was frozen. Dude. I didn't see anything. They were Thank sweet. God.
1: They were so sweet. But I think that's also medicine too. Like we have to remember that like, we don't always have to be so inspirational. You know what totally. I'm saying?
0: You don't have to always be profound no. or like have an agenda. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I'm doing, I'm a part of this thing now and I want to be vague because I don't. I don't want it to be obvious what it is. It's a new call. I'm just kidding. It's just this thing. And a lot of it is these conversations that are profound and inspirational.
1: And sometimes I'm just like, well, yeah, I feel like for me, I'm always in my head in those situations where I'm like, okay, so what can I say that? And it's not about one upping someone. It's just like, how can I literally have a seat at the table here? Totally. And then I think to your point, it's like, is that the point? Mm Mm-hmm. Of course not, because that person who sounds profound to us might listen to us and be like, "Wow, whoa!"
0: (laughs) And it's just like, "What am I going to do? Manipulate what I really feel so that I'm saying it for other people to think that I'm smart?" Well, then that's not actually. I'm not learning anything. Mm -hmm. I'm learning how to how to manipulate what it is that I want to say, and I'm not truly expressing myself. But I'm. I've been realizing I'm in a phase of like not wanting anything inspirational, really, Mm -hmm. because I'm just. And maybe I'm not expressing myself, but sometimes I'm just like, oh, let's just like, let's just roll with the punches. Mm-hmm. And let's just like hang out. Well, I think there's so much of it. Yes. Flying at Especially us right, right now. now during this time. It's like, yeah. get
1: the most out of your quarantine. And I've been wanting, like, it, it's almost like, even though it's quieter and we've slowed down, there is this like volume turn up mm-hmm. on that and on Instagram. And I'm like, more and more craving just literal silence. So I'm like finding myself like two hours before bed. I'm like everything off. Love that. (laughs) And it's hard at times because I'm like, I kind of need to feel less quote unquote lonely, but it's, it's really just, I actually have the best ideas when I'm just staring at a wall, like quiet. I love that, <laughs> but it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Cause we depend on it so
0: much completely. It's like what feeds us. Yeah. But I've been really, you know, it has been inspiring to, to do the lives and the workshops and have these conversations and just really dig into things more so that I've wanted to, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, you know, through our new paradigm digital workshop series. It's been awesome to just get as much information about one topic as I want and apply it to my life and
1: just feel so like I'm able to integrate everything quickly. Yeah, it's been very tangible. Yes. So it hasn't been too esoteric where I'm like, wait a second, I need to re like rewatch this eight times. Mm-hmm. It's really like an experience where I'm understanding, like for example, you know, Nicole Lappin and like, even with um, Jenna Zoe, like mm-hmm. revisiting human design and with Nicole Lappin with finance, like, okay, so today I'm actually going to focus on like, what would really move me forward. And I make me feel like productive and confident around my finances. Let me use these two tips she gave. Okay, cool. Like it's very tactical. So I'm just feeling lucky that we have this time to do that. Yeah. And with the recorded workshops
0: that you guys can get to, Mm -hmm. we're moving into a little pitch. (laughs) No, but seriously. With the recorded ones is good because... You can go at it on, on, at your own pace. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you can stop, especially with the Jenna Zoe one and the Nicole one. Those were so dense with totally. information that you can stop and start it whenever. And I did really love that with the Nicoles, it was really relevant to like the crisis of money management during this time, which the girls in our secret Facebook group are talking about all the time. All the,
1: I think it's like number one stress. And I
0: had even questions because I was like, I'm investing now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, should I not? You know, mm-hmm. cause I'm thinking, and I'm like, is the financial system going to completely change after this? I think so. So is it dumb, but you know, it's just yeah. a weird time.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of like counterintuitive because like people, because if you're going to pull out mm-hmm. and you know, all the things. So, um, yeah, she's, she's our go-to for like, especially just, okay, what can I do today? Mm-hmm. Like what? What should I do? What should I not do? I and mean, she's so so real. But anyway, this this series will provide you with those like very focused, deep. Uh, experiences in a workshop setting. And you can connect with other people if you attend the live workshop. More information, almost30podcast.com slash new-paradigm. And upcoming, just a uh, last shout out about the series, we have Ryan Weiss hosting a workshop with us around quitting anxiety forever. Yeah,
0: we did a live, Ryan and I did a live on anxiety and it was so awesome to talk openly about anxiety. And what I like about Ryan's work is that it's like step by step, a breakdown about anxiety and how to get unstuck and feel capable and strong again. So this one is going to be amazing. And it also includes Ryan's um, anxiety ending meditation, which can help further the practice whenever you need it. So that is going to be really inspirational. Ryan is incredible. He's like LA's premier life coach. And then the next one that we have, mm-hmm. Alexandra Roxo, baby, fuck like a goddess. <laughs> F star, U. Oh my god, it's hilarious. <laughs> on the website, <laughs> on the website, it has F star UCK. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not right at all. <laughs> like, oh God, this, that's hilarious. Hold on, let me open up Slack team. On, yeah, please alert the team now. And <laughs> Alexandra Roxo is our favorite feminine women's empowerment coach, mystical, amazing person. She's a speaker, creative author, and we're going to embrace and embody all parts of the feminine and learn mm. to fuck like a goddess. So that one's going to be amazing. And then we have Natalie Miles, who's our dear, dear friend, spiritual mentor and psychic medium, all about reactivating our intuition, finding our gifts, and taking back our power. So that one's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, we have healing the female friendship wound with Lindsay and I. We're going to be all talking about friendships, empowerment, figuring out your own shadows, and forming more meaningful, heartfelt
1: relationships. Yeah. That's been a big theme for us throughout the years, just as we've evolved, it's been important for us to kind of heal those relationships and understand why why we've put them to the wayside or why they've been such like a touchy thing for us. So we're excited to share that because I know a lot of you have expressed to us that that's something that, that you deal with. So, okay, pitch is over, but it's important. we Awesome. I'm so pumped. <laughs>
0: Almost38podcast.com slash new
1: paradigm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and
0: we're going to change the F star UCK.
1: <laughs> okay, today is, I'm really I'm really excited. Today we have Dr. Lori Santos on and I've been hearing about her for years and didn't really realize it, but she always came up when the topic of happiness was brought in and she teaches a um, psych course at Yale, like the most popular course of all time. It's called Psychology and the Good Life. And basically they take it online now, so anyone can enroll. But she was inspired by, you know, her experience with her college students and realizing that they really weren't happy. They were actually very depressed and anxious and sad. And there's really not talk of mental health in this way. And um, she just made it so science heavy, so tactical too, which I think the science part really helps people to understand the value of practicing happiness. So I just, I loved talking to her. Yeah. I think
0: if if you're going to talk about happiness in order, I feel like to take it seriously, people need science Mm -hmm. because I actually feel like the word happy can be triggering for people. It could feel like spiritual bypassy. It can feel like, I don't know. It's a very interesting thing that when people are like, I just want to be happy. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, people are like, wow, I want to be happy. It's almost like people shortchange or think less of 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 that. Yeah. But it's something to think about, you know, because I do feel like the dominant feeling in the collective is anger and frustration. And that seems to be overshadowing of feelings of joy and feelings of happiness. So if you're in the camp of feeling joy and happiness, it almost seems like you don't know it. you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. You're not in the loop. Mm -hmm. You're not um, in touch and in order to be in touch, to be in the loop, to be on top of what's going on in the world, you have to be angry, frustrated, mad. So I think it's interesting to talk about happiness and, and to dig into the science behind it and really what it means to be happy and reclaiming that word for ourselves that it isn't something that means you're out of touch. It can mean something that you're
1: even more in touch than ever. Yeah. And I also don't think it means smiling and laughing all the time. Like happiness is so much deeper. And I think that's why I've had a hard time when people say, well, I just want to be happy because I always just feel like, do we know what that word means? Yes. Like, do you know what that feels like? or Because I don't. like, I literally (laughs) don't. And it's not to say that I haven't experienced happiness. It's just that I think we've Like when I think of happiness, I literally see the word and I'm like, it's yellow, it's bright. It's like this like cute thing. But I just think it's so much- I think of the Justin Bieber, Drew House
0: smiley face. Totally.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so much deeper than that. And people don't give credit to the dimensionality of that emotion and how happiness can actually be an experience of like a high and a low. And like there is just so much dimension- to it. And I think it also involves resilience, at least like in my experience, where I'm just like, I'm able to experience happiness more often when I just feel resilient in situations that in the past would have really brought me down for a long period of time. For sure.
0: Are you looking up a quote? Yeah, I'm looking up a quote. Uh, peace, love, and happiness is, my, <laughs> is the quote that I want to look up. No, I'm actually looking for the origin of the word happy. Mm hmm. And it came from the word lucky, I guess. It means good luck. So hap and then e, meaning good luck, mm. which is very interesting etymology. Oh. It's really cool to actually look at etymology of a lot of words. It kind mm. of helps to explain a lot of things. But yeah, I think this will be a really great conversation for now. You know, Can we have happiness during this time? What does it mean to be happy? What are the actual steps that are scientifically proven to bring us to a state of more contentment
1: mm-hmm. than we have had before. We also talk about like what affects happiness most, whether it's, you know, nature, nurture, genetics, yes, uh, environment. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting. We pick it apart um, and I know you will definitely relate, especially during this time. We also just make it super relevant to what's going on in the world and what that could look like now, how we can kind of, cause happiness where we are even in isolation, not seeing people. We talk about that. We talk about community and connecting. So thank you, Dr. Lori Santos. Um, And as I said, that course is available online. You can go to Coursera.com and she also has her podcast The Happiness Lab, which is really, really good. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you at the workshops, New Paradigm
0: Digital Workshop Series, tickets available on our website. If you are interested in cultivating more peace in your life, our really affordable program is now available on our website called Inner Peace, which has all the tools, resources, strategies Lindsay and I implement in our lives to cultivate more peace. If you're interested to follow us on Instagram, Almost 30 Podcast. And if you are called, we would love if you wrote a review for Almost 30 on iTunes. It means the world. And on the other side of the episode, we will read the
1: review of the week. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. See you soon.
0: We're so grateful to have you here. It's just such a relevant time and topic, and we're such huge fans of the work you do. It's so incredibly important and nuanced and special. So thank you for joining us. We're so glad to yeah, have you. No, it's fun. And I know you've been talking, you know, to your community and publicly about how to stay happy during during these times, specifically during COVID. And that's a conversation that we're having internally as a team and then with our larger community. Um, how do we hold space? How do we honor, you know, people that are grieving and going through hard times, but also maintain maintain our own sovereignty and happiness. So I'd love to talk about, you know, your learnings and sort of how you're practicing happiness during this time.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, first just to validate like, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about happiness during a pandemic or an awful crisis where people are suffering, I think you can sometimes get this knee-jerk reaction of like almost like how dare you? Like yes. how dare you talk about happiness during this time? And I think It's important to acknowledge like a lot of people are going through a lot and you know, you need to do what you can do right now, you know, and if that's nothing, if that's like you're really sick and you can't do anything, that's also okay too. But all that said, I think, you know, just because things are bad doesn't mean that we can't make them a little bit better through our attitude, through our mindset, and through the behaviors that we engage in. And that's the way we've been thinking about it, kind of in the work that I've been doing with you know my producers and folks at the Happiness Lab podcast, we've just been trying to think of ways that we can make things a little bit better. Obviously, it's not going to solve this crisis, but but the science suggests there are things we can do to to make it a little bit better. And so for me personally, you know because I spread a lot of this advice, but I have to you know adopt the advice myself, For me personally, one of the biggest things has been prioritizing social connection during this crazy time. The thing we need to do to protect our physical selves against this virus is to stay really far apart. But of course, that's exactly the opposite thing that our psychology needs during this virus. We need to be together and with other people. And you know, you all are a little bit younger, but I remember nine eleven and other kinds of catastrophes or things that felt like these awful, scary, anxiety producing situations. But back then, like I could go to a bar with friends or I could go see my mom and you know, the the coping that we do socially, we just can't do right now. And so the good news is that we have technologies just like this. You know, you and I, we're all talking over Zoom right now, and we can use those to be social with the people we really care about. And I think to do so in a really informal way, you know, we all know how to do this sort of stuff for work or for podcasts, but I think we're kind of developing new norms about what it looks like to call a friend while I'm chopping vegetables, you know, and I'm like baking dinner or do Zoom yoga classes together. I think, you know, it's the kind of like more silly stuff that we're missing in our social connection with other people. And so finding ways to build that in, I think is really essential.
1: Yeah. What is it about the social connection that, you know, what is the science behind like when you are in person, actually touching and hearing people and being able to emote in front and with one another? What is the science of that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if we really know why it feels so good. What we do know (laughs) is that it does feel good. So every available survey of happy people suggests happy people are more social. Um, They spend more time with other people physically, like in contact with other people, and they prioritize time with the people they really care about. Mm. And so why that's so important, I think we're not actually sure. I mean, probably we're just social primates and you know, just like, you know, like I I heard this analogy that, you know, a salamander when it's under stress wants to be in like a cold, dark kind of wet place and just all by itself. Whereas like primates, when we're under stress, Mm. we want to like hug another primate and groom with them and be social. And so I think it's just part of our makeup that we really need it, but but happy people get it and they prioritize that stuff. And Mm. and there's causal evidence that it makes us happy. So you take not so happy folks and you force them to be a little social And the data shows that their positive mood increases, their overall well-being increases. And also we know that loneliness, kind of the opposite of feeling social connection, can be just like awful for our mental health. It's also awful for our physical health. It's as bad as uh, the surgeon, the former Surgeon General says that it's as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day to feel lonely. So it really messes with your immune function and it promotes heart disease and all this stuff. So, um, but the point you know we don't want to we don't want to throw ourselves into that loneliness camp during covid nineteen. so I think we need to be really intentional about the way we choose social connection right now, right. Yeah,
0: I think it'll be um, powerful to see like how the transition happens between us experiencing and leaning on technology for social connection, but not receiving the energetic connection that happens when you're in person. Because, you know, oxytocin is released when you touch and that's like, you know, there are actual hormonal elements to physical touch that make people happy and that are the reason for people being happy. And I think it's interesting too, like as warm-blooded animals for us to touch and that really um, be a part of happiness. It's an interesting balance too, you know, right now when we're leaning on Zoom so much and Instagram, and Instagram live and all these things for like our connection and happiness, what is that balance for people? And I know you work and you speak to college students a lot. And so I think that really is like the, the sweet spot for the, the focus of, of the real pain and struggle because they've grown up with so much social media. What is the balance for people that they can, they can seek to have between uh, connection and, you know, just checking out on social media?
2: Yeah, I think I think that question is really critical because I think we get confused about what the real social connection is. You know, what's the thing that gives us that well being bump and what's the stuff that is easy or it feels like it's gonna work but kind of doesn't work. And so you're right, in person social connection would be the best thing if we could, you know, be with each other in presence and like, you know, hug each other and so on. The good news is that in real time actually works almost as good as in real life. You know, you don't get the touch part, but you know, even in this conversation, I'm seeing your facial expressions, you're hearing the intonation in my voice, we're doing this all in real time, right? What doesn't work as well is the stuff that I think my college students are more used to. So texting, you know, kind of liking things on an Instagram feed, you know, kind of like group chats or, you know, those things don't really activate the same stuff, actually. And in some studies, we kind of get things wrong. I mean, we've all had that case where it's like, you know, you texted somebody, Something you thought was kind of innocuous and they wrote back like, well, fine, you know, right? If you feel yeah. that way, you're like, wait, I didn't, I wasn't trying to be pissy, like, just kidding. You know? Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. period. You yeah, know? THX. So, yeah, exactly. And so so I think one one worthy though is that those kinds of connections are easier right now. Like, especially when we're kind of fatigued and depleted and just, you know, dead and so busy. And I think that we gravitate towards the easy stuff, but we often do that at the opportunity cost of you know, a real social connection. I can feel that myself. You know, I'll have a busy day. You know, as I said, we're all kind of in the midst of all these Zoom meetings, these academics, our whole life that was in person is now on these screens. And at the end of it, you can kind of feel like, oh God, like, I'm just gonna, you know, scroll my Facebook feed or just look at Twitter. But actually the data suggests if at that point, you know, I called my mom or I tried to get on a Zoom call with like a friend, like I'd be better off. And mm. so... We have to fight against the urge to do the easy thing, which might, or the thing with a very low startup cost, because that might not be the thing that gives us the most well being right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so interesting that I think that's maybe what trips people up. And I'm going to just speak from my own experience where like happiness is a practice and it's not always going to be easy, but it seems counterintuitive because shouldn't happiness? feel easy, right? Like, you know, that's why I think, you know, people turn around and they're like, no, I'm not going to go that route because it just feels hard and it shouldn't be hard. Can you kind of dig into the work behind happiness?
2: Yeah, I I think there's work for happiness in two ways. One is, you know, like all good things, happiness is gonna take a daily effort. You know, you don't just like go to the gym once and get, you know, perfect legs and perfect abs. Like you have to kind of keep going. You have to put I'm in I'm still effort. going. I've been going on, right? And still <laughs> or, you know, not gym. <laughs> go for the yeah, rest doesn't of have my to, life. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be the fitness metaphor. I mean, you know, like, you know, <laughs> know you like learn an instrument <laughs> mm-hmm. or whatever. Like happiness is gonna be the same way. It's gonna take work and it's gonna take constant work. But I think there's the special kind of work that that's particularly hard. Um, and that that kind of work is this idea that we, we also need to realize that we don't understand what's going to make us happy. Like part of the work is realizing that our intuitions are kind of sucky. Mm. You know, like take what we were just talking about, right? were, you know, my intuition is like, oh my God, I'm just going to plop down and watch Netflix or just scroll through my Instagram. That's what I need right now. But actually, I probably need to like call a friend in real time or I need to get out there and exercise or I need to do something a little bit more active and less apathetic. And so this is the thing we talk about a lot on my podcast, which is that our theories about what is going to bring us happiness are often wrong. And part of the work is recognizing that that's true and doing something that goes outside of our comfort zone because our comfort zone isn't great for us.
0: Wow, that's mm, powerful. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, thanks for... Yeah, thanks yeah, yeah, for... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah The <laughs> noticing these things. You're, yeah. you're,
0: you're some beautiful <laughs> long hair. Yeah, I actually, in addition to that, I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned at the beginning how saying talking about being happy right now is triggering for people in a way. And I think I've even noticed that when I talk about happiness in general, it does seem to trigger people in a way to almost feel like you're out of touch or you are you haven't experienced anything. It kind of discredits you in in some aspects. Have you guys done research or
2: looked into like the social construction around like what are what are belief of happiness people? Yeah, I think I mean I think it's like a huge field and I think again depending on how you think about it, you might pursue it in all kinds of different ways. You know, one of the misconceptions that comes up is that in some ways, like happiness is a first world problem. I get that a lot from my students, right? Like, oh, you're going to worry about happiness when people are, you know, hungry or people are, you know, there's inequality in the world. But actually the data suggests that happiness can causally affect some of those things. So in other words, happier people tend to live longer, like happier people tend to be healthier, happier people tend to perform better at their job. And so in some ways, I think this idea that it's a first world problem is missing the fact that it, it might actually have a, a stronger causal effect on the things we really care about than not. And so, yeah, so I think that there's, there's some theories that we have about happiness that they too are kind of wrong sometimes. Um, and that affects whether or not people want to put the work in to pursue it.
1: And just on that note, like... You know, I I haven't traveled a ton, but when I have, and I've been in places that are considered not first world, um, I've seen some of the happiest people, you know? So I'd love to dig into like the materialism and how, yeah, maybe, (laughs) maybe it is a first world problem in the sense that like the obsession with materialism is... Uh, or the correlation between happiness and having a lot of things is actually making us more unhappy. So I'd love to yeah, talk I think about that's, that.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what the data show, in fact. So I mean, I think we think, yeah, especially in, like, in the Western modern world, like happiness is about being rich or happiness is about being famous or happiness, as you said, is about having lots of material possessions. And the data just don't bear that out. Actually, there is a correlation between happiness and materialism. So being the kind of person that seeks out material goods, mm-hmm. but it's a negative correlation. So as you get more materialistic, yes. you get less happy. Um, really? You know, you probably know it from you know, like no surprise when I say it, right? You know, people who are, are yes. like that, and the but... inverse. I've actually know people that the happier they are, the less they want material. Exactly right, and th- and I think mm. that's that that is a general thing that we see in the happiness work is that it, our circumstances just don't matter for happiness as much as we think, like whether we can buy those good things and so on. And I think it, that gets to your point that like if you travel the world and you see people who are happy and sad, it doesn't map onto their circumstances. You can see the happiest people living in the direst of circumstances and vice versa. You know, many, uh, many uh, incredibly rich, incredibly successful person in their heart of hearts is feeling pretty miserable. And so, but the problem is that when we try to pursue happiness or when we try to make ourselves happy, we often go towards those material things, right? Mm. You know, there's a whole advertising industrial complex trying to convince us that, you know, we'd be happier if we bought something today. Ben, they're
0: done
1: that. Yeah, truly.
0: Um, And and to that point, I think there's, there's an average income that they found, I believe in the data that shows this is the average income that people find they're the most happy. And then as it increases, they actually move further away from happiness. Are you familiar with that?
2: Yeah, so it's 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 not necessarily that you get further away from happiness. It's more just that increased income doesn't have any effect on your happiness. You kind of mm-hmm. just like level off. Um, right now, or at least the data were from around 2009. But back in 2009, when they did the study, that was around 75k in the U.S. Wow. Um, so under that, you kind of get the sense like under that, you know, you might need to be working extra hours. You're worried about putting food on your table. You know, depending on where you live, you might have housing insecurity and so on. But once you hit that you know, you're basically fine. You know, most of your material needs are met. And after that, it's just kind of gravy, but, but you see what happens. Like you just end up striving for more and more and more. Yes. Um, one funny study. So that, that study was about, if you look at people's well being, does it go up? If you get more salary, they were measuring like people's well being, not asking them about salary. But if you ask people about salary, you get even more interesting data. So one study, uh, ask people at different incomes, how much would you need to be happy? Like, what's the amount that if you got any more, you wouldn't need any more money? And so they ask people around $30,000. And those folks say, if only I could get $50,000, then I'd be good. Right. But if you ask people who are earning $100,000, those folks don't say, like, oh, I'm totally good. Those folks say, I need $250,000 to be good. Mm. And so the, the point is like, you never get there, but also your goal, what you think you need gets further off as you get more money. So it's not like you get closer as you get more money, you get further away from your goal. I feel that very deeply. (laughs) I was like, what would I say? Honestly, you
0: you just read my diary. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to to dig into like genetic, do people have like a genetic disposition or are they born more happy or what does the data show around, like
2: is it attitude or is it nature versus nurture? Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, totally. So so there are data that suggests that well-being is heritable, meaning there should be some genetic component. And we know that from like data that... We know that from research that studies twins. And so you compare identical and fraternal twins. Identical twins have the same genes. Fraternal twins, they live in the same household, but different genes. And what you find is that identical twins are more likely to have similar well-being than the fraternal twins. Ergo, the genetics probably is playing some effect. But the effect of heritability is relatively small. In other words, like you're not like built to be happy or not. And if you look at what the genetics is doing, it's kind of changing people's behavior. Like it changes their intuitions, say, about how social they want to be, or it changes their intuitions about how grateful they want to be. And so the upshot is that it means that even though there might be some heritable component, that just kind of makes it easier, harder. You're not like locked into that. Um, It's probably less heritable than even things like height or weight. You know, you're more like any, any of us can change our weight if we want to, Mm. but the idea is that the same is true of happiness. If you just put a certain amount of energy in, then you can change your happiness levels too.
1: And you mentioned earlier on about the importance of attitude, mindset, and behavior. Does one have to come before the other? How does, how do they work together?
2: I think they interact a lot. I mean, I, I see, I see changing the behaviors as things like making more time to be social, um, becoming a little bit more other-oriented, so you're taking on behaviors that help other people a lot. Um, in terms of mindset, I see things like taking time for gratitude. You know, taking time to be a little bit more present. I guess that could be attitude too. I want to smoosh mindset and attitude there, but but they're sort of reciprocal. You know, if if I'm if I'm trying to cultivate a mindset of gratitude, it would be good to scribble down things I'm grateful for, or thank people more in my life, or you know, write those thank you letters I've always been meaning to write. Mm-hmm so even those mindsets need to translate into behavior same thing with presence you know i might want to cultivate a mindset of presence but i best do that through practices like meditation or practices where i'm really you know focused on being present you kind of have to do that it takes intentional effort so all these things wind up interacting with one another if you do the right behaviors then it's easier to maintain the right attitudes and mindsets
1: right
0: did you have your own journey with happiness you know what was like your impetus for really being interested in it
2: yeah, so it started when I took on a new role at Yale. So I'm a fact, I'm a uh, professor here at Yale, uh, and for a while I was doing that. But then about four years ago, I became a head of college at Yale. And so these not are to brag, I, not to brag. <laughs> not you know, to brag. Yeah. I'm just kidding. It's a mixed, you know. It's, it's a wonderful job, but it's also a mixed job. It basically for means sure. I'm a dorm mother for like 500 students. I should love you to death. And they, you know, they, they, <laughs> I miss them. they're all off campus oh. right now from COVID nineteen. But um, oh. but that was when I really started hanging out with students closely, and that was when I really started to see this mental health crisis among students, kind of up close and personal. Where, yeah, you know, I was just seeing students who were just like anxious all the time, or panic stricken about whether they were going to get some internship, or you know, even in some cases, like you know, actively suicidal and. It was just different than I remember my undergrad being. It was just much more intense and much more extreme for these students. And so the, the journey to starting the class really started with them. I just thought, this is so sad that my community is going through this stuff. And it was extra frustrating because I knew there was work on this. I knew there were interventions that these students could take to feel better. I should say, though, at the same time, you know, I, I also saw a lot of myself in them. Because you know, I was watching them become miserable because they were prioritizing the, right, the wrong stuff. You know, they were not hanging out with their friends because they were working on problem sets too late. You know, they were not taking any time off. You know, they were griping and complaining about all this stuff and not feeling gracious and experiencing thankfulness. And so even though I was worried about them, I was also seeing my own bad habits in some of their behavior. And so part of the route to happiness was to learn about this stuff, to teach it to my students, but also, you know, secretly kind of so I could practice it a little bit more myself. Because I knew if I was, Teaching it and becoming an expert on it, I'd have to actually double down and really do it myself. It doesn't really work if you're telling them to be grateful and mindful and they are watching you and you're super not doing it yourself.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't think there's been a generational example yet, which, like, I'm curious to see if it will happen on the other side of what's going on now with COVID 19, where it is the norm or it is looked upon as productive to slow down. You know, it is productive to take time for yourself, to meditate, you know, because I, I, I'm thinking about myself in college and no, I didn't like give myself like intentional thoughtful breaks, right? Like my breaks would be the weekends when i get really drunk. You know what I'm saying? Like there was never like, okay, I'm going to take a walk around campus right now for 20 minutes, clear my head, maybe meditate, come back to this paper. It was always like grind, 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 because that's what I had to do in order to get it done and to feel somewhat of satisfaction in the work that I'm doing.
2: Yeah. And I think it's only gotten worse, you know, since you went to college, right? mean, just in the last 10 years, we know that students are feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling more busy feeling more anxious. And I watch my students when they finally get some free time, which is incredibly rare, they just get super anxious, right? Yeah. They're just like, I need to be doing something. I just feel like I'm supposed to be doing something or I'm falling behind. And, and so, which is just so devastating, I think, because the, the research really suggests that time is a much more precious commodity for our happiness than so many mm. other things. Time is actually more important than money for our happiness. Um, there's a lot of research by uh, Ashley Willans, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, and she studies what's called time affluence, which is this subjective feeling that you're wealthy in time. Um, mm-hmm. She finds it's the opposite of what's called time famine, when you're kind of famished, you know, starving for time. But the effects of time famine look a lot like the effects of hunger famine, right? Where we're like, you know, starving and we're kind of triaging things and we're kind of desperate. It spikes your stress hormones. And it's just feeling like you don't have that much time. And so she actually finds that e- the the odd thing is that we're feeling more time famished than ever, but the data actually suggests that we're getting more free time than we ever have, which is kind of weird. Um, but, but she finds that that free time is broken up into what she calls time confetti. It's these like little tiny blocks of time here and there, which add up if we use them the right way, but it never really feels like we have a lot of time. Mm. It's like meeting meeting. And then I have like 45 minutes off But I'm like, oh, what can I do in those 45 minutes? I'll just go on Twitter or I'll just check some email. And so so we never kind of feel like we have these big blocks of time, but she finds it really maps onto being. So people who prioritize their time affluence, um, usually over their wealth affluence end up happier.
0: Wow. Fun. That's profound.
2: Yeah. That's very interesting. I think it is to,
0: you know, where you have the extra 10 minutes, a meeting ends early and you're like on your phone, you're like, okay, how many emails can I answer? What could I get done? But it's, you know, the, the worthiness thing that I think we have and students more so of today have. So within that generation, you know, do you believe that there has been the social, the influx of social media or what do you think is causing them to feel more, Mentally unwell and have more mental wellness, health issues? Or is it because we have the languaging around it where we now understand it? Like, w- what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, it's a huge, that is a million dollar question. It's like, what has changed? We know it has changed a lot, and the stats are just crazy. So, you know, right now, a modern day college students, over 40% of them say that they're too depressed to function most days. Mm. Um, just under 70% say that they're overwhelmingly anxious. Um, over 10 percent are actively considering suicide at least at one point during the last year it's just like really wow, striking profound and, and have doubled like the depression statistic has doubled in just the last nine years and so on the one hand you know it, it might be that we're getting less stigma around mental health stuff which is great um, there's also evidence that we are kind of more clinical in how we talk about these things you know so you know before you know maybe if i was nervous to come on this podcast i'd say oh i have butterflies in my stomach but but nowadays, I'd be like, I'm anxious or I'm yes. having a panic attack, right? You know? And so we get more clinical in how we describe things. But that said, I don't think we've gotten that much more clinical in like the last eight years you know, to double the number of diagnoses. And so something's gone on. Part of it might be technology and social media. A lot of like fingers are pointed at social media, but I actually worry less about social media and more just about phones and technology in general you know, like if if I think about why I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to do, I'm not being social in real life with people or I'm not sleeping really well, or I'm not feeling grateful. I'm kind of like being really like, you know, kind of jealous of what's <laughs> going on. It's often not social media. It's just that like, I'm looking at this screen and you know, I want to check my email at night or I'm in, I'm in some line and I could talk to somebody, but it's easier to like scroll through like Reddit or just like scroll through Google News. And so part of it's social media, but part of it's just, we have this easy thing that can grab our attention. That's in the pockets of six billion people, and I think that it's hard to avoid those screens all the time because mm-hmm. they're there. But but there we use them at an opportunity cost of the stuff we should be doing, like being present. Right? Yes. When's the last time you were in a line and you just you know breathed and thought about stuff and were curious, like just like never ever happens before. Or even <clears throat> for my students, when was the last time they were bored? Like I think boredom is basically gone because as soon as you're bored, it's like well I could watch a billion different cat videos right now. Why should I be mm-hmm, bored? Right, but, you know, boredom, presence, all those things are good for us and we just don't experience them as much anymore.
1: Have you done any research or read any research about what we, like, put in our bodies? I can, like obviously tell you from experience that I f- feel good and maybe have a better mood when I'm eating certain foods, healthier foods. But is there is there science behind that specifically?
2: Yeah. There's less good stuff on that than other healthy habits like sleep and exercise. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some hints that you know if you're putting crap into your body, if you're basically just not taking care of your health generally, that can have a real mental health impact. It's not just a physical health impact. The work on sleep is just really incredible. So there's one study suggesting that uh, after a week of deprived sleep, and by deprived sleep, they mean five hours a night, you basically tank your mental health. Like Ugh. certain scores on certain mood scores basically drop by half. And so when you think about the fact that our modern day college students are sleeping five hours a night, like regularly, like as a generation, you know, I almost think we can solve a lot of this mental health crisis just by getting people to sleep. Truly. And thinking about what's going on in the current crisis, I think a lot of us who had really reasonable sleep before are now you know, anxious and not able to fall asleep and kind of feeling panicked in the middle of the night. And I think, you know, that's a real hit on people's well-being beyond just the rest of this crisis is just kind of not being able to sleep as well is the kind of thing I'm hearing reported. So, yeah. So these physical kinds of things, like what you put into your body, how you treat your body, exercise. Exercise is another one. There's evidence that a half hour of cardio in the morning is pretty much as good as a prescription of Zoloft for reducing depression symptoms, at least in certain studies. And so, you know, we forget that it's having, not just, again, it's like helping our weight and helping our heart health and whatever, but like, it's also helping our mental health. It's helping our mood more than we can expect.
1: Wow. I feel
0: that. that. When you started your studies and your research, did you meet any resistance or was everyone always like on board with the work that you were doing?
2: Um, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll answer that in terms of the class. I think a lot of students obviously were excited. It kind of went viral on Yale's class. I think you know, there was some pushback. I think there, there are people who interpret the kind of crisis that students are in right now as, as somehow their fault. You know, you'll hear people be like, oh, they're snowflakes or, you know, like they're kind of like helicopter <laughs> Snowflake kills me. Or, yeah. <laughs> it's like, so, so weird. <laughs> which is so funny because every time people say that, I'm like, well, how do you think they became snowflakes? You know, like, like totally. that means that our generation or their generation totally. above them. Um, totally. Totally. But uh, yeah, so I think th- those people who had that knee-jerk reaction also had the same reaction to the class. It was like, really? These kids need a class about how to be happy? Like, that's so stupid. But I think, you know, the r- response to that was twofold. One is like, it's not, you know, some fluffy platitude class. Like it- This is all scientific work and they're reading neuroscience studies and studies about, you know, like immune function and things like this is like real like gritty stuff that you would expect in a biology class or a, or a rigorous social science class i think the second thing is that you know on the one hand you know the they, folks are making fun of the students but then you know two million people are taking it online now right and so it's like this wasn't just a bunch of snow quote-unquote snowflakey students who wanted to take it like everybody's curious about how they can improve their happiness like it was in the declaration of independence you know it's just pursuing happiness So. Yeah, so I think, you know, the people who want to make fun of this generation will do that. But I think in practice, it wound up being a whole set of habits that they were able to use in a positive way.
1: Mm. It just makes me think about like where education is going, like the content of education. Because I mean, Lord have mercy. Mm -hmm. I was in so many classes that might have been interesting, but where I'm just, I don't think we have to always use what we learn, but. I don't know. I I do think, and we, this podcast was kind of started out of the fact that we didn't learn a lot of what, how to navigate what we're navigating right now. And so a class like this would be so helpful um, for so many reasons. So do you see like education going more in that direction?
2: Yeah, I think, I think so in the sense, I mean, I guess for a couple of reasons, one is you know with the rates of mental health that we're seeing among our college students like where 40% of them are too depressed to function most days and almost 70% say that they're overwhelmingly anxious like they're not learning what i'm trying to teach them in the other classes you know where, like they're totally. reading Chaucer and Shakespeare and learning computer science like they're not retaining any of that stuff if they're in that much mental mm. health distress you know so so part of it is like i think universities are kidding themselves that they're achieving their you know quote real mission if they Students are learning because with this level of mental health dysfunction, they're not. I think the second thing is that one reason we need to learn this stuff is that our minds have these incorrect intuitions. And so, if you just kind of grow up the normal way, you might not get the right kinds of things that you need to do to be happy. For for whatever reason, the way we're raising our kids now is focusing on all this stuff that doesn't matter you know, finances and material success and accolades and, you know, achievement and all this stuff like that doesn't work for making you feel like you have a good life when you're on your deathbed. Like when you're, in, when you're on your deathbed, what you would have wanted is to have rich social connections, have a lot of love in your life, You know, feel like you savored these things that matter and that you really were present and you enjoyed it. And so, so somehow we're raising folks who are doing it all wrong. And so I think we do need classes like this to help train people to do it the right way because somehow we've really gone astray I think our minds are kind of built to see it wrong, but then we also have a culture that's sort of pushing us the wrong way in a lot of different domains and through a lot of different problematic structures.
0: Mm. For sure. It's almost like more like the subconscious programming that most people have rather than like an incorrect intuition because it's like intuition would be what would lead us to like understand. We all know that when you're on your deathbed, you're going to say, I wish I spent more time with my family. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Everyone knows that, but it's like the actual action is like the subconscious programming and- you know, the lower part of our brain that causes us to continue to lead the life outside of outside of what we know is true. I want to explore like the conversation around mental health online and social media and in, I guess, the general zeitgeist and how it's increased over time. Like what are some tips you would give to people who are talking about their mental health publicly, whether it's on their social media or or with friends and family? Like, do you have any guidelines for
2: them or any tips or advice? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one thing is, you know, have some self-compassion about it, right? I think for some people, the fact that other people are sharing can put pressure on people who aren't ready to do it yet. And you feel like, oh gosh, there's like, you know, there's an Instagram forum for this. I'm supposed to talk about it, but maybe I'm not ready yet. And I think for folks who are experiencing that, you know, just have some self-compassion. Like you, it's up to you to put yourself out there as much as you want. Um, But that said, if you're comfortable doing that, I think that is one of the nice things about the fact that the stigma has gone down, is that you can actually connect with people about the things that you're going through. You know, one of the things about many parts of our mental health crises, whether it's kind of depression or anxiety, is it draws you inward. You know, you get really internally focused. But the way to snap out of them sometimes, particularly things like depression, is to like become a little bit more social. It's to connect with other people. But if you add loneliness on top of those things, it doesn't really help. And so sometimes these online forums can be real ways for people to open up, to connect, to feel like that they're not alone in the world, they're not going through this alone, and to get like some practical tips about how to get through stuff. But that said, like you know, it's not for everybody, and and different people are at different stages with this stuff. And so honor honor what you need at different stages. I think is the best way to go about things.
1: Yeah. Is there a part of the course that you teach that Consistently surprises students.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's about these misconceptions, right? Because I think you know students get sort of that money doesn't make you happy, but when that translates into like, and therefore you all shouldn't try to go into finance or shouldn't try to become you know Instagram celebrities or shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> that's when it's a little like, well, hang on, hang on, let me mm-hmm. fight with that. And so when we present, for example, that study we talked about about money, you know, the seventy five thousand dollars is all you need, and getting more than that doesn't make you much happier. I'll usually get like a big line of students afterwards to be like, well, but what if you like live in San Francisco? Or like, mm-hmm. but what if you like spend it differently? Or but what mm-hmm. if you know you came below and the... like they really want to fight with you about that. Um, and the same thing, another thing for the class that I talk about is a different misconception, which is about grades. And so many of the students think that perfect grades will make them happy, but the data there also show a negative correlation. In other words, in high school and college, students that got the best grades actually often had on average the lowest levels of well-being. Um, Also the lowest levels of optimism and the lowest levels of self-esteem. And that's another one that they want to, you know, not necessarily fight with me about because I think they have that intuition that they, you know, are so unhappy in part because they're focused on it. But when the prescription becomes, maybe you should care about your grades less, or maybe you should, you know, check your priorities and see if you're over-prioritizing your academic performance. That they don't really like, especially the kids Mm. at Yale who, you know, I'm sure rewarded for (laughs) being perfect, perfect, perfect academically. That's how they got there. So it's, it, that one's a hard one for them to process Mm. and to come to terms with.
1: Sure. Wow. Okay.
2: My last question is a two parter.
0: During this time, you know, what's going on right now with COVID, there seems to be, and, and, you know, to group people into two groups is generalizing and, on a a large level, but I've, I've come in contact and a lot of people within our community find this time to be very spacious and nourishing and they are almost thriving. Um, what would we say to them and their happiness during this time? Like what would that be attributed to? And then two, for the people that aren't feeling happy and that are feeling very low and, um, nervous and anxious, what are some things that we would suggest for them to do?
2: Yeah. So, so on the happy folks, I think you know there there there's silver linings to some of this stuff and i think it depends on how you were living before this but you know for people in an incredibly fast paced life who you know never had any time who never saw their partners or never saw their kids like to suddenly slow down and you know be with your family and not be in these meetings like sometimes for people it's like whoa there's good stuff here you know what i mean and so it, it's also the case that we know that changes of situations can sometimes lead us to do habits that are healthier for ourselves. You know, think of like when you move to a new city or you break up with, you know, your old boyfriend or something. Like sometimes those new crazy moments can let you form new habits. Um, after it's a breakups, I, like, crush. Mm-hmm. I crush. I crush after breakups. The best move, move. right? You know, like move... move. People who move to that new city where they have new friends, you know, no friends and everyone thinks like, oh, they're gonna fall apart. And it's like, no, that's when they, you know, go on this crazy fitness kick and so on. And so so new situations are powerful. And so I think there are some people who either just because it's a totally new situation or because some of their lifestyle before wasn't healthy, are actually realizing that this can be a productive time or at least a healthy time. And Good for them, you know, like make good use of it. But you know, for those of us that really are struggling in this time and that is like completely validated, like it is a pandemic, it is not a staycation, like people are dying, like this there's really scary stuff out there. Like, you know, first just to validate that, that like, yeah, of course of course we're gonna have some trauma and of course we're gonna have a hard time with this. That makes total sense. But there are still things you can do to feel a little bit better. And one of the best ones I think for people who are having a hard time because of COVID. Is to to kind of think through and to sort of be be honest with yourself about what emotions you're going through and what your body's feeling like. Um, is to kind of really be present with that, even if it's uncomfortable. So I try to do this myself of notice like, oh, like I'm my chest is really tight. I'm feeling really panicked right now. What was I just doing? Like, oh, I was scrolling through Google News or I was looking over my husband's shoulder while he was like looking at these scary statistics. Like, I'm feeling. You know, like my tummy is messed up. My digestion is kind of all wigged out. What's been happening? Like, oh, I've been like eating like crap or like I haven't you know, gotten my cardio. And I think it's, it's a time when we need to pay attention to what's going on in our bodies and do what we need to do to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if we have energy for it, not everybody's gonna have energy for everything, but even if you have energy for a few baby steps every once in a while, that's gonna be better. And those baby steps can help you turn into, you can help you turn positive behaviors into habits that will stick better. And so, you know, if you're struggling, you don't have to be, you know, perfect Instagram productive. That's not what we're asking. But, you know, there are things you can do to try to help. If you can squeeze those in and if you can get yourself to do them, it can be really powerful.
1: My last question. We talk a decent amount about meditation on the podcast. So I know that's a part of your course. So could you share just um, for those of our listeners that um, haven't tried meditation yet, how that could improve their happiness?
2: Yeah. It it feels when you talk about the science of meditation that it's kind of a panacea, but that's also because like it's kind of a panacea. <laughs> don't really, you know, it's sort of crazy. And so, so by meditation, we mean any practice where you deliberately take time and that could be 20 minutes it could be a single minute to focus on something so that can is often your breath and a lot of forms of mindfulness based stress reduction you just watch your breath going in and out of your body it could be a mantra like a statement that you say over and over again it could be wishing people uh, goodwills. So good is like compassion or loving kindness meditation or even thinking about things that you're grateful for but it's a specific time that rather than letting your mind do its normal wandering of like doo, 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 to all these things you try to focus on one thing. And if you do it and you haven't done it before, if you try it for the first time, you'll immediately realize that you suck at meditation, (laughs) that your mind wanders to all these things. But the the work of meditation, the thing that is like the kind of pumping iron that's like making your mind stronger is every time you notice it, kind of reel it back. Um, My good friend, Heidi Kober, who's also a neuroscientist who studies meditation says, every time you notice your mind wandering and bring it back, you should be excited. You're like, yes. Like you just kind of like went up a level because that's what the work is, is mm. noticing it and bringing it back. But the act of doing that does a couple of things. One is it allows you to increase your concentration muscles. So you can focus on a particular thing. And that can improve our well-being simply because it means we can focus on the things that are really good in life. You know, how many times have I missed out on a great conversation with my husband because my mind's like, doo, doo, doo. you know, so I'm not there savoring, I'm not present. Or how many times have I not noticed like, you know, a delicious latte or a nice cupcake or something because I'm just not present. The act of meditating causes you to be present for the good stuff that you're engaging in because you've gotten some practice at bringing your mind back into sticking to one thing. Um, in the time of COVID-19, it can be really powerful because it means you're not focused on the panic scrolling and the stuff, even for that one minute or 20 minutes or whatever that you meditate. You're actually focused on your breath. And so Mm -hmm. that's time that you're not ruminating. You're not kind of focused on the anxious things. And the power of that is that your mind can get off the threat, but also your body and your breath can switch from threat mode. Um, one of the things we're all doing right now is a lot of us are in fight or flight mode. Like we're kind of panicked and kind of, you know, ready for this tiger to attack us because there's, you know, germs on every doorknob and people panic buying toilet paper and so on. But that activates our sympathetic nervous system. That's a, That's our fight or flight response. But the act of breathing really deeply and focusing on your breath um, can shut your sympathetic nervous system off. It basically turns on this opposite system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the sort of rest and digest. And so you basically shut off this one system that's running rampant and causing us to be in this panic mode for a long time. Mm. And so so those are some of those. and, And then if you look scientifically at like all the benefits of meditation, it's like just the list just gets longer and crazier. You know, you get... Better concentration, um, reduced anxiety, reduced depression, um, more easily uh, able to recover from things like addiction and reduced craving. Um, you even get better immune function. You know, there's evidence that you know the telomeres, these parts of our genome that like we want to really stay strong, those get stronger after you meditate for a while. So mm. the benefits are huge. But it sucks when you're doing it, <laughs> at least in the beginning. Um, but it's supposed to suck, as like I try to remind myself. <laughs> uh, so I would say to listeners if they haven't tried it yet, just try it. Just do a minute where you focus on your breath, set a little timer, and try it. You'll notice that it's hard and it sucks. But every time you notice your mind coming back, you did it right, and so you're getting some benefit. Mm,
1: definitely
0: beautiful meditation has been the most profound transformational tool for me, for sure. And I love mm-hmm. that it's free and accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, for everyone. So. This was really powerful. I'm so yes. grateful we were able to talk to you, especially during this time. It just worked out perfectly. I would love to um, share with our community where they can find you and learn more.
2: Yeah, so you, if you like podcasts about happy, wholesome stuff, you should check out the Happiness Lab uh, podcast wherever you download your podcast. Uh, and if you want to try out this Yale class uh, that so many students have taken, we put a free version online on Coursera.org. It's called The Science of Wellbeing. So you can check it out for free so cool incredible so so cool thank Thank you you, so much
1: we appreciate it so very much
2: (laughs) have a
0: good
1: one we'll see you soon thank you so much Bye. bye Thanks so much, Dr. Lori. You can listen to her podcast, The Happiness Lab. And then again, Psychology and the Good Life is available to take online, Coursera. But thank you so much again.
0: Yes, and we'd love to chat with you guys in the Facebook group about what happiness means to you. Is it possible? We are also available on YouTube and we have a Twitter account that we tweet inspirational quotes and funny things. And we're on Pinterest. So if you're interested in following us on any of those channels,
1: definitely feel free. And review of the week this is from jackie thanks jackie thanks to everyone who has written reviews it means so much to us we read every one of them this is amazing five stars i love this podcast i feel like everything discussed is so relevant to me but also it is also delivered in an organic insightful and caring way and that's jackie in australia thank you so much jack
0: Appreciate it. Love our love our Aussie fam. Oh Maybe my God, when we're so on tour much. in a hundred years,
1: again, <laughs> we'll be able to see you guys. I can't believe we went there right before I know. all this happened. Thank you again to everyone for listening and just for your insight into what you want to talk about and what's going on with you. It really helps us to curate the show and, and support the show. So thank you. Thank you. And we're here for you during this time and beyond. You can visit almost30podcast.com for our digital workshop series, for our new program, Inner Peace, and so much more. Yes, we love
0: you. We love you. We love you. We'll see you next time. See you. Bye.